Chapter 23 of My Airships by Alberto Santos Dumont. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 23 The Airship in War. On Saturday morning, the 11th of July, 1903, at about 10 a.m., the wind blowing at the time in gusts, I accepted a wager to go to luncheon at the Sylvan Restaurant of the Cascade in my little number nine airship. While the number nine, with its egg-shaped balloon and motor of but three horsepower, was not built for speed, or what amounts to the same thing for battling with the wind, I thought that I could do it. Reaching my station at Nuyer Saint-James at about 11.30 a.m., I had the little craft brought out and carefully weighed and balanced. It was in perfect condition, having lost none of its gas from the previous day. At 11.50, I started off. Fortunately, the wind came to me head-on as I steered for the cascade. My progress was not rapid, but I nevertheless met my friends on the lawn of that café-restaurant of the Bois de Boulogne at 12.30 noon. We took our luncheon, and I was preparing to depart when began an adventure that may take me far. As everybody knows, the restaurant of the Cascade is close to Longchamp. While we lunched, officers of the French army, engaged in marking out the positions of the troops for the Grand Review of the 14th of July, observed the airship on the lawn and came to inspect it. Shall you come to the review in it? they asked me. The year previous there had been question of such a demonstration in the presence of the army, but I had hesitated for reasons that may be readily divined. After the visit of the King of England, I was asked on every hand why I had not brought out the airship in his honor, and the same question had arisen in anticipation of the visit of the King of Italy, who had been expected to be present at this review. I answered the officers that I could not make up my mind, that I was not sure how such an apparition would be viewed, and that my little number nine, the only one of my fleet actually in commission, not being built for battling with high winds, I could not be sure to keep an engagement in it. Come and choose a place to land, they said. We will mark it out for you, in any case. And as I continued to insist on my uncertainty of being present, they very courteously picked out and marked a place for me themselves, opposite the spot to be occupied by the President of the Republic, in order that Monsieur Loubet and his staff might have a perfect view of the airship's evolutions. "'You will come if you can,' the officer said. "'You need not fear to make such a provisional engagement. 
for you have already given your proofs. I hope I shall not be misunderstood when I say that it may be possible that those superior officers did good work for their army and country that morning, because, in order to begin, one must make a beginning, and I should scarcely have ventured to the review without some kind of invitation. Venturing to the review, as I did in consequence, a whole train of events followed. In the early morning of the 14th of July, 1903, as the number nine was weighed and balanced, I was nervous lest some unforeseen thing might happen to it in my very grounds. One is often thus on great occasions, and I did not seek to conceal it from myself that this, the first presentation of an airship to any army, would be a great occasion. On ordinary days I never hesitate to mount from my grounds, over the stone wall and the river, and so on, to Bagatelle. This morning I had the number nine towed to the railing of Bagatelle by means of its guide rope. At 8.30 a.m. I called, Let go all! Rising, I found my level course at an altitude of less than 100 meters, or 330 feet, and in a few moments was circling and maneuvering above the heads of the soldiers nearest to me. Thence I passed over Longchamp, and arriving opposite the President, I fired a salute of twenty-one blank revolver cartridges. I did not take the place marked out for me. Fearing to disturb the good order of the review by prolonging an unusual sight, I made my evolutions in the presence of the army last, all told, less than ten minutes. After this, I steered for the polo grounds, where I was congratulated by a number of my friends. These congratulations I found the next day repeated in the Paris papers, together with conjectures of all kinds concerning the use of the airship in war. The superior officers who came to see me at the Cascade that morning had said, it is practical, and will have to be taken account of in war. I am entirely at your service, had been my answer at the time. And now, under these influences, I sat down and wrote to the Minister of War, offering, in case of hostility with any country save those of the two Americas, to put my aerial fleet at the disposition of the government of the Republic. In doing this, I merely put into formal written words the offer which I certainly should feel bound to make in case of the breaking out of such hostility at any future time during my residence in France. It is in France that I have met with all my encouragement, in France, and with French material, I have made all my experiments, and the mass of my friends 
or French. I accepted the two Americas because I am an American, and I added that in the impossible case of a war between France and Brazil, I should feel bound to volunteer my services to the land of my birth and citizenship. A few days later, I received the following letter from the French Minister of War. Republique Française, Paris, 19th July, 1903. Ministère de la Guerre, Cabinet du Ministre. Monsieur, during the review of the 14th of July, I had remarked and admired the ease and security with which the balloon you were steering made its evolutions. It was impossible not to acknowledge the progress which you have given to aerial navigation. It seems that, thanks to you, such navigation must, henceforward, lend itself to practical applications, especially from the military point of view. I consider that, in this respect, it may render very substantial services in time of war. I am very happy, therefore, to accept the offer which you make of putting, in case of need, your aerial flotilla at the disposition of the government of the Republic, and, in its name, I thank you for your gracious proposition, which shows your lively sympathy for France. I have appointed Chief of Battalion Hirschhauer, commanding the Battalion of Balloonists in the 1st Regiment of Engineers, to examine, in agreement with you, the dispositions to take for putting the intentions you have manifested into execution. Lieutenant Colonel Bordeaux, sous-chef of my cabinet, will also be associated with this superior officer in order to keep me personally aware of the results of your joint labors. Recevez, monsieur, les échéances de ma considération la plus distinguée. Signed, General André, à monsieur Alberto Santos Dumont. On Friday, the 31st of July, 1903, Commandant Hirschhauer and Lieutenant Colonel Bordeaux spent the afternoon with me at my airship station at Neuilly-Saint-Jean, where I had my three newest airships, the Racing Number 7, the Omnibus Number 10, and the Runabout Number 9, ready for their study. Briefly, I may say that the opinions expressed by the representatives of the Minister of War were so unreservedly favorable that a practical test of a novel character was decided to be made. Should the airship chosen pass successfully through it, the result will be conclusive of its military value. Now that these particular experiments are leaving my exclusively private control, I will say no more of them than what has already been published in the French press. 
the test will probably consist of an attempt to enter one of the french frontier towns such as belfort or nancy on the same day that the airship leaves paris it will not of course be necessary to make the whole journey in the airship a military railway wagon may be assigned to carry it with its balloon uninflated with tubes of hydrogen to fill it and with all the necessary machinery and instruments arranged beside it at some station a short distance from the town to be entered the wagon may be uncoupled from the train and a sufficient number of soldiers accompanying the officers will unload the airship and its appliances transport the whole to the nearest open space and at once begin inflating the balloon within two hours from the time of quitting the train the airship may be ready for its flight to the interior of the technically besieged town such may be the outline of the task a task presented imperiously to french balloonists by the events of eighteen seventy and eighteen seventy one and which all the devotion and science of the sandier brothers failed to accomplish Today, the problem may be set with better hope of success. All the essential difficulties may be revived by the marking out of a hostile zone around the town that must be entered. From beyond the outer edge of this zone, then, the airship will rise and take its flight across it. Will the airship be able to rise out of rifle range? I have always been the first to insist that the normal place of the airship is in low altitudes. And I shall have written this book to little purpose if I have not shown the reader the real dangers attending any brusque vertical mounting to considerable heights. For this we have the terrible Severo accident before our eyes. In particular, I have expressed astonishment at hearing of experimenters rising to these altitudes without adequate purpose in their early stages of experience with dirigible balloons. All this is very different, however, from a reasoned, cautious mounting whose necessity has been foreseen and prepared for. To keep out of rifle range, the airship will but seldom be obliged to make these tremendous vertical leaps. Its navigator, even at a moderate altitude, will enjoy a very extended view of the surrounding country. Thus, he will be able to perceive danger afar off and take his precautions. Even in my little number nine, which carries only sixty kilograms or one hundred and thirty-two pounds of ballast, I could rise, materially aided by my shifting weights and propeller to great heights. If I have not done so, it is because it would have served no useful purpose during a period of pleasure navigation. 
while it would but have added danger to experiments from which I have sought to eliminate all danger. Dangers like these are to be accepted only when a good cause justifies them. The experiments above named are, of course, of a nature interesting warfare by land. I cannot abandon this topic, however, without referring to one unique maritime advantage of the airship. This is the navigator's ability to perceive bodies moving beneath the surface of the water. Cruising at the end of its guide rope, the airship will carry its navigator here and there, at will, at the right height above the waves. Any submarine boat, stealthily pursuing its course underneath them, will be beautifully visible to him, while from a warship's deck it would be quite invisible. This is a well-observed fact and depends on certain optical laws. Thus, very curiously, the 20th century airship must become from the beginning the great enemy of that other 20th century marvel, the submarine boat, and not only its enemy, but its master. For while the submarine boat can do no harm to the airship, the latter, having twice its speed, can cruise about to find it, follow all its movements, and signal them to the warships against which it is moving. Indeed, it may be able to destroy the submarine boat by sending down to it long arrows filled with dynamite and capable of penetrating to depths underneath the waves impossible to gunnery from the decks of a warship. End of chapter 23